Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the space and help lead the charge towards a more decentralized web. everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Matthew Gold, founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains, and our guest, Mike Krogan, cybersecurity data protection and privacy attorney at Clark Hill. Before we dive in today, just a quick disclaimer, this interview is for informational purposes only and is not to be taken as legal advice. Do not rely on anything we say today as legal advice, especially if you've got a legal problem at hand. And I will let Mike jump in and cover any disclaimer portion that I didn't before we dive into the interview. Yes, I suggest anyone who has a legal issue seek legal advice from a qualified professional because facts and circumstances matter very much. And, and, and this is an area that's of law that's in its infancy and is developing very quickly. So what we say here today could become outdated. The applicable federal law and the laws of individual states can often result in an overlapping coverage with different standards. So they all must be applied to a specific situation. But, I, but I'm happy to cover everything from a general information standpoint. And these are my comments only and not my firm's. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mike, for being here. Welcome. Before we get started, I guess, first off, why don't you just tell people what does a cybersecurity and privacy attorney do? Yeah. So first of all, thanks for having me. What I do is I help clients navigate and defend their actions with respect to cybersecurity and data. I do that as a senior attorney at Clark Hill in the litigation and cybersecurity data protection and privacy groups in the Chicago office. It's a big firm. It's multidisciplinary, international, with more than 650 attorneys across the U.S., as well as in Dublin and Mexico City. But our cyber group, which is most relevant today, offers counseling, transaction, compliance, and remediation work across a broad range of industries and regulatory regimes, including federal, state, EU, data breach notice laws, state consumer protection laws, such as the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is hot, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, as you know, HIPAA, and the European General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR. We also provide a full suite of services in the wake of security incidents, which unfortunately happen quite a bit, including response planning, breach investigations, incident response, preparation of notice to affected individuals, and communications with law enforcement. Oh, I was going to say, we have a lot of incidents in crypto over the years. And I'm actually kind of curious, like we had a pretty large hardware company was recently had a breach. There's an exchange hack probably once a month in cryptocurrency, people's data getting leaked. So I'm actually curious, like, how did you get into crypto initially? <laughs> was it was it you're looking out here and you're like, these guys could really use a lot of help on the privacy side of things. And not only that, it's kind of wild because there's all sorts of new interactions here that may be a little bit different. So how did you... How'd you guys end up getting interested in crypto, you know, individually and then as a firm? Right. Well, as you can imagine, a lot of these security incidents can lead to litigation. And I'm also in the litigation group at Clark Hill. So that's where I come in specifically. I talk about class actions, ransomware attacks, socially engineered wire fraud, all kinds of things like that typically can lead to litigation, which is where I get in, involved. Personally, I was intellectually curious in the area. I did not initially begin practicing in privacy or securities law, but I was interested in it. And one day I got a, a wire fraud case, came across my desk, and I was thrilled to 
work on it. I found it extremely interesting, and I see this as a growing area of the law, something that's not going away, a technology that I think is going to just continue to grow and will need people to make sure that everyone is compliant with the law and, and behaving themselves. So I'm, I was thrilled to get into it, and I'm really excited to be talking about it. That's awesome. Mike, I'm just curious, how would you explain crypto to somebody that doesn't know anything about it, say your grandma, for instance? Actually, I just talked to her about this. It was not as easy as I expected. I, I would tell her that crypto, you know, at the end of the day, it's a digital currency. It's like the U.S. dollar in that it's a digital currency, but it's protected by encryption, right? You can use it to buy and sell goods, but it doesn't have, it's not like gold where it has an intrinsic value, right? I'm sure I'm telling you guys things that you already know, but if I'm explaining it to my grandma, I'm telling her it's not issued by the Fed. There's no central authority behind it. It's not considered legal tender. People don't have to take it. So it's a little different than the U.S. dollar. You know, and she might ask, well, then why, why should I be interested in it if the U.S. dollar works just fine for me? But it's not really, and, and I'm, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir, it's not really just about being able to buy things, right? It's about the underlying technology, the ledgers, the decentralization, the security, the increased privacy for transactions, the in elimination of intermediaries, and possibly even the ability to use self-executing smart contracts. So I think it's the underlying technology behind crypto that it's built on that is what has everyone so excited. So I'm, I've got to ask, because you are coming from a privacy attorney background, was that one of the aspects that drew you into crypto? Could you talk to me a little bit about that part? Uh, yeah, I, I think the privacy involved with cryptocurrency transactions is going to be very interesting to see where it goes, because I do think that regulators, they're going to want to make sure that criminals aren't able to exploit cryptocurrency because of the privacy. So I think there's going to be a balance that has to be struck, but I, I don't think that it's going to be completely de-anonymized. I think there's, there's going to be a middle ground that is found. And I don't know where that is, but I think it's extremely interesting to watch how that will intersect. So as a follow-up, just to dig a little bit more, so what do you think the U.S. courts are going to feel about private transactions, you know, like cash is already private. This is something that people say all the time. Do you think the court is going to see digital cash transactions? Are they going to want them to have the same? Because that's like, that's one of my basic questions. Like I can have a private transaction with cash. Should I also be allowed to have a private transaction with a digital currency? You know, what are my rights there? And then, you know, I think that's really important, but I'd love to hear your view on it. Yeah, I don't know what the courts are going to say about that. And I think what you have to remember, stepping back, is that in our system, at least in the United States, and everything I discuss here is going to be U.S.-centric, unless I mention otherwise. What we have here in the U.S., right, is, think back to your civics class, right? You've got regulators who are enforcing laws and sometimes interpreting them, but interpretation is generally left to the court. And you've also got the laws, and some of it is common law, which is judge-made law. Other areas, though, are statutes that are on the books federally and statewide, and that is done by lawmakers. So the courts, I think, aren't going to pass on this with an open checkbook. They, they're not going to be able to just decide whether crypto transactions can and should be private. They're going to have to grapple with the regulatory regime and regulations that are promulgated by the regulators, in addition to the laws that are ultimately drafted by Congress statewide and federally. And so I don't know what they're going to say when one of those cases reaches the Supreme Court, but I'm going to be very interested in it. And I'm especially going to be interested to see which side takes the side of privacy, the conservative or the liberal wing of the court. 
And how close are, are we? Are there any cases right now that you're kind of interested in for, for this type of question or has it not even really come up yet? Because we're just starting to see like fraud cases and stuff. So I'm actually, you know, how far are we like two, five? I'm, I'm curious how many years? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know because I think it's going to take a while since you probably need in order for this to get to the Supreme Court, you're probably going to need a federal law that's passed in the area and then a challenge to it or a lawsuit over it. And then that's going to have to work its way through the district court level, through the appellate court and to the Supreme Court. So I think if once you see uh, laws passed in this area federally, which is anyone's guess when that will happen, I think you're still probably two to five years out from seeing a, a full decision on this issue. And then just from your own opinion, do you actually think digital transactions are going to you know, end up beneficial for consumer privacy? Or do you think it's going to actually be an infringement? And then like, what are the most concerning areas? Because some transactions like I'm buying my coffee is maybe not so private, but another one like donating to a political party, I would think would be, you know, depending on the situation may need to be more private. Well, I think about it in terms of the internet, right? We, we've adopted the technology and it's made everyone's life easier, but it comes at a cost, right? You've got data sharing and look at all the laws we've seen hit the books on that all the lawsuits, but people still use it because it benefit, ultimately it benefits the consumer. Even though you've lost some privacy, you gain, what you gain is outweighs it tremendously. And I think ultimately you're going to see the same thing with cryptocurrency transactions. Once the technology is fully adopted, I think the benefits will outweigh the drawback. And then this is my last one on privacy. <laughs> so like, do you think, well, in a specific case, like let's imagine that we had a, you know, U.S. blockchain-based central bank digital dollar. Uh, you know, I think, you know, will the U.S. Supreme Court care about the intrusion on privacy? Because we hear about the central bank currencies in other countries like China, where they could potentially monitor absolutely everything you do. And that seems Orwellian. And so do you think there's going to, I would think that that, if we actually built a, U.S. US backed uh, Federal Reserve digital dollar. Privacy has to be one of the most important things for people to figure out on how they're going to build that system, because that could be really intrusive. I think you hit the nail on the head, and that's going to be a major issue that has to be dealt with through Congress and then the courts. And I don't I don't know where it's going to go. So people who think that we're going to have a central bank U.S. dollar next year, we can we can confidently tell them that's not going to happen because there are several several years, if not a decade of law to figure out uh, before we get there. I think that's right. All right, cool. So sort of switching gears a little bit. One of the concepts that we talk about more broadly here is decentralization. If you've listened to past episodes of this podcast, you've heard us talk about that. I'm just curious, Mike, from your point of view, what will life in a decentralized system look like? And I'm curious here because you might be taking some other you know, legal aspects into consideration that the average person isn't. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Right. Diana, as a privacy litigator, my view might be a little different than yours or or Matthews or your listeners, right? From my view, our legal system as it currently stands is, is built to hold people and institutions accountable for wrongdoing, civilly and criminally. So if you think about the analogy of the carrot and the stick, I think here in our legal system, we use the stick more than the carrot. And I think in the context of true decentralization, there's a question, right, as to who is ultimately going to be held responsible when something goes wrong. Who's going to face contract liability, tort liability, and all the others? It would seem to me that if you put somebody like the software developers in the crosshairs, that it's going to disincentivize people from creating software, right? It's going to slow growth. So I think you might have to look elsewhere from a policy perspective if you want to really drive innovation in this space. 
So I think solving that problem, who is going to be held accountable in a decentralized system, will go a long way in, in starting to create some certainty in this area from the legal perspective, which you know certainty is definitely lacking right now. Yeah, so one of the places where I do see them holding people accountable here in the U.S. is actually you know the cryptocurrency exchanges themselves as the onboarding and offboarding ramps for KYC. So I can see that that's like a first part where we're trying to find responsible parties. I'm just kind of curious in your view, do you have any other areas that you think are are likely places for regulators to tune in a little bit more in the near future for where they may think that there's there's places where they could probably put in some guardrails? You know, I think you've seen most of it in the area of crypto, but I I think the crypto exchanges, they are not what I would say, you know, when you say what will life look like in a decentralized system, you know, I take that to mean fully decentralized, right? But in in the when you're talking about a crypto exchange, that's I don't believe fully decentralized and that leaves somebody to be held responsible, right? So I think in a true decentralized world where you're working, you know, without somebody like that, I don't know where the regulators will look. I think one option is the coders. I think I think another option may be we may have to the legal system may have to adjust in the United States. The regulatory regime may have to adjust. And it may have to adjust in the way that they need to find another way to ultimately try to help people who are harmed, right? And that may be by creating funds for victims of crime that can be paid out and don't have to be taken from somebody who's civilly or criminally liable. But these are all really difficult and complex questions that need to be addressed, which is why I think we're still a little bit ways off in the legal from the legal perspective. But I do think these conversations are happening. So something you mentioned that I thought was interesting was like, you know, if we start holding software developers liable, like that could really slow down innovation. And so we're looking, I guess that's a, what would you say to software developers right now, building on these blockchain systems? I guess they should at least just disclose to the users, you know, the riskiness of these things, or is there anything that these software developers who are writing these, you know, smart contracts that interact with the blockchain that, that consumers are starting to use, is there anything they can do to give the, the people using their apps more information about themselves so that they can make more informed decisions? I think that disclosures are always good. I would have to think about that more, and especially in the context of what is the software, right? What is it doing? What data is it collecting? What is the end goal from it? What is it, and what is it, you know, really using the data for? And what are the potential issues that could arise if there's a coding malfunction, right? So depending on all those circumstances, I would say you need to take a wholesome, and where, where are you operating, right? Jurisdictionally, which state, which country, and so I think all of those questions have to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. But my initial thought would be to take a step back, slow down, find somebody who is knowledgeable in the area, right, that can, that can give you some legal advice, and, and then make sure that that legal advice is followed, right? So let's dive into that a little bit more, Mike. You said there's a lot of different state laws, federal laws. Can you break that down for us? What are some of the key laws pertaining to blockchain and crypto that we see right now, both from a federal level and at a state level? Sure. That's a great question. There's so many. We could talk all day about it. But I want to focus on cryptocurrency because it's probably the most widely understood or at least most widely publicized use of blockchain. And I think it might be end up being the, the key to decentralization. In the United States, cryptocurrencies have to worry about federal and state government oversight and concerns within the federal government. That's included primarily the Securities and Exchange Commission. 
the Com Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and the Department of Treasury. The Treasury through the IRS and the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. So that's a lot, right? And they've been active. And the consequences uh, for, for violating things in their view and the regulator's view can be very severe. Despite all of this, though, despite all this you know, regulatory attention, there's been very little federal rulemaking to date. So it leaves a lot of uncertainty, right? It may be coming. There may be more rulemaking coming. Or, you know, I, I think this may reflect a policy decision to stay out of the way and kind of let the technology flourish without unnecessary or unknowledgeable red tape, right? Like, who's writing the laws? Do they know what they're doing? Do they understand the technology? Are they really considering the unintended consequences? Because it would be a shame for rules to be passed that don't really have the effect that they're intended to have. Got it. And then what about at a state level? Have we seen any rulemaking at the state levels? And maybe can you give some examples of some states that have instituted any rules regarding crypto? Sure. Several, actually, several state governments, as opposed to the federal government, several state governments have proposed or passed laws that affect cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Some states have passed very favorable regulations, often by exempting cryptocurrencies from state securities laws and or money transmission statutes, which are another big topic. Wyoming, one example, recently passed a bill exempting cryptocurrencies from property taxation. People, Some people have said that Wyoming is the most crypto-friendly jurisdiction in the United States. For in September 2020, as you might know, uh, Kraken, a leading crypto exchange, obtained a banking license, actually, from the state of Wyoming, thereby giving it access to the federal payments infrastructure. It's very big. Part of that deal was, though, of course, they had to hold 100% of reserves for its crypto assets. So, so that came with a price, right? Another state, by, by way of example, is Colorado. They've passed a bipartisan bill promoting the use of blockchain for government record keeping, which is another interesting use of the technology, I think. And Arizona and Georgia have taken steps to legalize Bitcoin as a payment for taxes. So you're seeing it start to, start to bubble up, right? But it's not a green light everywhere. You've got almost a, do a dozen other states like California and New Mexico where warnings have been issued for investors regarding cryptocurrency. And you've got states like New York where their laws on cryptocurrency are viewed as very restrictive. So I would say it's a mixed bag, but you're seeing a lot more state level regulation and lawmaking than you are federally. Yeah, that's really interesting to me because that's not something that we've ever seen in the past with, you know, how investing works right now or even with how the Internet, Internet 2.0, web, as we know today, how that works. We basically you know, in terms of regulation, we just have the CCPA, which started out of California, but now pretty much applies across the board. And with crypto and blockchain, we're really not seeing that. Why do you think crypto and blockchain is regulated at a state level much more so than at a federal level? I don't know. I think part of it might be that you're seeing states try to compete with each other for, you know, passing more favorable regulations, right? If they want to drive business to their state, think of Delaware, you know, as the home of corporations, right? States can form policies based on behavior they want to see occur. So if a state like Wyoming wants to drive some innovation in business, they're going to pass more favorable regulations. So you might see them do it a little more quickly. I don't know. Well, I, I can't really answer why the federal government hasn't had any laws passed or rulemaking. I'm sure there's a lot of behind the scenes discussion on K Street in Washington. I don't have any access to those discussions or I'm not privy to any of that. So, so I'm not sure how close we are. But like I said, it might be a policy, uh, it might be a policy decision federally to kind of let the states handle it and not get in the way federally of something that may be a benefit to our country generally if we are a leader in this industry. 
let's st- take a step back here because we just talked about states. And I'm actually just at a high level, you know, is the sale of cryptocurrency regulated in the U.S. at all? And this may be for people who are newer to cryptocurrency. So just take us through, you know, what's the current landscape on you know, the sale mm-hmm. of cryptocurrency in the U.S.? It generally, the sale of cryptocurrency is only going to be regulated in two circumstances. The first one is that if the sale constitutes a sale of a security under state or federal law, okay? The second circumstance is if it's considered a money transmission under state law or conduct otherwise making the person a money service services business, that's a term of art, under federal law. So in addition, you've got derivative contracts that are tied to a virtual currency that's considered a commodity. Those also would be subject to regulation by the CFTC. So the CFTC, right, also has jurisdiction over market manipulation with respect to virtual currencies. Right here where I am in Chicago, you've got two largest, the two largest derivatives exchanges, the CBOE and the CME, who both offer futures linked to the price of Bitcoin. So you might ask, okay, that's a lot of information and it's a lot of legalese, but why does this matter? Crypto is considered a security, right, like a stock or a commodity like gold. It affects who can buy and hold them who can deal them, and who can keep custody of them, in addition to what disclosures must be made. So the bottom line for your listeners is that classifying crypto as a security will significantly increase regulatory and compliance costs, which could chill the market, right? That's, at the end of the day, what it all means. So those are the general frameworks, and you know, there's a lot of implications therefrom. Okay, so we just talked about cryptocurrency regulation. I'm actually kind of curious about securities laws. So this is another huge topic with crypto, especially back in 2017. There were a lot of companies out there issuing tokens on the blockchain. So what about securities laws and its application to crypto? Right, so as we discussed, whether crypto is considered a security or not, you know, determines whether it's regulated by the SEC, right? And the SEC generally has regulatory authority over the issuance or resale of any token or other digital asset. So the SEC's position right now appears to be that ICOs, depending on the facts surrounding them, very well might be securities and fall under their jurisdiction. So ICOs that are securities are most likely going to need to be registered with the SEC or fall under a regulatory exemption to registration. And it's, you know, it's important, I think, for everyone who's in this area who may not be familiar with the laws to, to understand that you know, ICOs can go by a variety of names. But just because you call something a utility token or give it some utility doesn't necessarily mean that it's automatically going to be prevented from being uh, deemed a security by the SEC. So the effort and expense, though, that goes into ICO offerings with the SEC can be cost prohibitive. It's very expensive. But prospective ICO issuers might, under the it depends on the circumstances, might be able to offer them to accredited investors without registering them through various regulations under the Securities Act, Regulation D, Regulation A+, Regulation CF. These are all very specific sub-regulations that can allow that can help allow to circumvent the registration process. So that that's sort of what happened with the Ripple lawsuit, right? It is that sort of like can you break the break that down for our listeners and sort of explain what happened there? Yeah, so I I, w- I will break that down in one second, but before I do, I think you got to take a step back and look at Telegram. So the consequences of violating securities laws can be very severe. If you look at Telegram's token offering of of the grams 
the if you go back and look at what the SEC did there, they filed a complaint against Telegram alleging they'd raised capital to finance the business by selling about 2.9 billion grams to 171 different purchasers, right, worldwide. And then in June 2020, they settled with the SEC and agreed to return more than $1.2 billion to investors and had to pay an $18.5 million civil penalty. So that's a registration issue, right? If the SEC thinks you're, you're selling securities, you're, selling, you're, you're raising funds, and, and you're taking it from investors who hope to make money on that investment, you know, it's probably going to be a security and it might need to be registered. So, and, and the consequences of, of not understanding that or, or taking the right approach from a regulatory perspective can be severe. But Ripple, you, you just mentioned Ripple as well. ICOs don't only have to worry about the SEC. They have to worry also about, about investors suing them. Last month, the SEC sued Ripple for unregistered security sales relating to XRP. Then, after seeing what the SEC did, right, investors got the bright idea to sue Ripple in a private lawsuit. So the underlying claim there in that lawsuit is that the defendants sold XRP without registering as a security. So you're getting hit both from a regulatory perspective and from a potential civil liability perspective based on the same issue, right? So there's a lot of ways that this issue with SEC registration can rear its head. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so another issue that, you know, I've thought about in this context is is money laundering. And we all know there's a there's anti-money laundering laws that apply generally, but are there any specific anti-money money laundering laws that apply to crypto? Yes, there are. Diana, under the Bank Secrecy Act, the FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement, regulates money services businesses, as I mentioned earlier. Back in 2013, FinCEN actually issued some guidance on this and stated that virtual currency exchanges and administrators of a centralized repository of virtual currency who have the authority to both issue and redeem the virtual currency. So think of like the central bank, a central bank, right, are considered MSBs. And that's important because legally that's significant because MSBs are required to conduct comprehensive risk assessments and of their exposure to money laundering and implement anti-money laundering programs based on the findings of those risk assessments. So it doesn't stop there, though, because Americans are prohibited also from doing business with foreign nationals who are on the specially designated nationals and blocked entities list of the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control. So it's really important for exchanges to have compliance programs in place to avoid or mitigate receiving civil and criminal penalties from the OFAC for noncompliance. And that's a lot of information that is very legal, but I have a real world example on it. And it, it's BitMEX, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, nominally uh, headquartered in the Seychelles, nominally not accepting U.S. customers, but in reality, allegedly, right, I'll say allegedly, they were operating in the U.S. and accepting U.S. customers. And allegedly they knew it. So what happened to them? They had five entities and three individuals who own and operate it get charged by the U.S. authorities for operating an unregistered trading platform and violating CFTC regulations and the Bank Secrecy Act, specifically with respect to failure to implement anti-money laundering procedures. And there, I, I mean, the consequences are massive from, were massive from BitMEX, right? You've got, they're seeking, the CFTC is seeking disgorgement of ill-gotten gains, right? Give me your, all of your profits, a lot of your profit, which was a large number, right? Civil monetary penalties, whatever they decide is appropriate. Restitution to all the customers, permanent bans from registration and trading, injunctions preventing them from 
doing business in the future on these exchanges. So, I mean, just completely getting blackballed, facing criminal charges, facing jail time, and having to give up everything, every asset, right, in their name. It's huge. So we've just covered a lot here, so I'm going to take a step back. Sounds like it's really hard to start a business in crypto. And as someone who's in the who started a business in crypto, I can raise my hand and say, yes, it is very difficult. So for listeners out there, if you're looking to start a cryptocurrency exchange, you know, please Please make sure you uh, dot all your I's and cross your T's and talk to somebody like Michael about that before you go out and and start your own. Just don't do it on uh, Craigslist. And then I would also say if you're interested in, you know, maybe if you're a software developer and you're more like me and you're building some project out there, do make sure you get some advice before going out and creating your own internal token. You know, these really large companies like Telegram and the the Ripple company, I think these are both billion dollar companies. So if these guys can run into trouble, I mean, you definitely can have the same problems. And this is part of the whole issues we have in the crypto space, where like everyone's like, oh, man, when is cryptocurrency going to be mainstream? And I tell people like, it takes a long time, because there's just there's a lot to work out. And it's not and there's a lot of details to work out. It's not going to happen in a week or a year. It's going to take five years to get there and just do it right, right? <laughs> like come in it with the right intentions and head and head the right direction. And make sure you talk to people. And I think, unfortunately, you know, the U.S. government is a little bit behind here. We were talking earlier, you know, the federal regulations are not coming as quick as we like, but maybe that's also a good thing because we're still trying to figure these out. But for people at home who just want to buy cryptocurrency, just have to ask, like, what if I want to just buy crypto? Uh, you know, like how how safe how safe is that? You know, do you, Michael, do you own crypto yourself? And, you know, like, do you feel like it's a if, if you know, grandma wants to go at home and she just wants to play around with a little bit, you know, she doesn't need to worry about any of this because she's not running an exchange or, or an issue in token issuing a token, right? This is perfectly fine for her at her house to use her own money to do with. Right. Well, I think a lot of the concerns that I've raised and addressed, right, really relate to the people who are issuing these things and not the people who are just just buying them. I don't want to give anyone investment advice, right? Yeah, but 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 I think when you're looking at the stock market, when you're looking at cryptocurrency, when you're looking at bonds, when you're looking everything has a has a level of risk. Right. And everything has a potential level of return. And what you, you know, I think crypto, I view it as a, you know, I think if you were looking at it five years ago, maybe, I think it was riskier, but it had a higher potential return. Right. And now we've seen it climb and climb and climb. And so it's more expensive to get in now. So I think some of the upside is capped. But I, I do think that there is risk and it's accounted for, though, with the potential reward. So it's, you have to look at it and determine what's best for your money. But I, I wouldn't tell anyone not to do not to invest or purchase cryptocurrency because of regulatory concerns. I would just say to be careful. And this is what I tell people about the space as well, because, you know, cryptocurrency has a lot of dark past. There were a lot of things in the early days of Bitcoin and, you know, that was associated with various activity that wasn't the best. But the rules in general are here to protect people. Like, you know, the SEC is a consumer protection agency and so are all these. So maybe people like to hear it from the horse's mouth. Like, so Michael, how do you feel about all these regulatory agencies? Like they're they're actually trying to get in this space to they're here to help protect the everyday user. Do you think that's an accurate characterization of coming for consumers? That's that's what they're here for. I know that not everyone will probably agree with me on this. I actually just saw Mark Cuban was tweeting about the Securities and Exchange Commission, 
and his views on who they really are protecting. I, I am optimistic, and I, I look at it as as we've got a lot of people in the government, a lot of you know career government officials who are trying to do their best to wrap their heads and their hands around a new technology, one that isn't, I, I think, able to be regulated the same way as a lot of our other industries. But I, I, I believe that they are trying to protect consumers, the SEC, the CFTC, uh, FinCEN. I, I do believe that. And I think that ultimately they'll find a way to balance consumer protection and enterprise, right, and innovation. So I, I do think we'll get there. I'm, I'm optimistic that we will. I do think we will get there. And, I, and I, I'm not, you know, worried that they're just going to, you know, kind of do something that would harm consumers because they want they want they, they don't want to regulate the industry or they they want to regulate it in a way that will benefit others yeah there's a lot of people actually in the space who agree with you and more people are coming to this view i think Raul paul i don't know if you know who he is he's pretty famous he has his real vision show and he's like i'm looking forward to regulation because that's when you can actually build big businesses and bring money into the space so i think that we're closer there than most people think speaking of protecting consumers so you've already mentioned this like you brought it up a couple times but what do you think about gamestop because what happened <laughs> what happened with all the people in the cryptocurrency community, particularly the people in some of these smart contract platform communities where we have this thing, decentralized finance, where it's basically permissionless finance, where you don't have a broker, you know, you don't have Robin Hood standing between you and trying to trade GameStop. There's nothing in the middle. And then they looked out and they just looked over here and saw this GameStop fiasco happen with with Robin Hood recently, where they they stopped you from trading like in the middle of in the middle of a purchase. And like that doesn't feel very American. So I'm kind of curious what do you think about GameStop in, in the same type of like these regulators here to protect people? And then, you know, this GameStop thing is happening. Where does that fall in? I am fascinated <laughs> by, I'm so glad you, I'm so glad you brought it up because I, I like, I can't look away from this story from so many different perspectives, especially as I was gearing up to come on this show. Right. It seemed to hit like right at the same time because right. Okay. So just to make sure everyone's on the same page from my view, you had, you had hedge funds, with huge derivative positions, right? They were shorting GameStop, right? They're betting, for those who don't understand finance, they're, they're betting that the price is gonna drop, right? So when the price rose dramatically last week, they lost a lot of money. So these positions are shorting generally is very risky because the hedge funds were borrowing the stock and the money needed to make the bet and can be forced to put up additional money known as a margin call if the price increases. So those are the types of risks that are serious, and they manifested themselves perfectly last week, not only in, in GameStop, but even more generally, right, with the, with the gamified trading, I'll call it the gamified trading platforms like Robinhood. And so that's, I think, what the SEC and the CFTC are interested in regulating and, and, and protecting consumers from making bets that people can't really afford to make. So that's a huge issue, but I think it's the more interesting thing to talk about with respect to GameStop and Robinhood is that there's a lot of people who don't think Robinhood should have halted trading. And I think that this Robinhood GameStop story generally helps the argument for full decentralization. But if I'm if I were to play, you know, I will play the devil's advocate for a second and say, well, wait a second. How different is this really from the Ethereum Dow fork in 2016, right? I know the situations are different, clearly different. You have a single actor versus a group. You've got, you know, totally different set of circumstances. But where do you draw the line, right? When do you step in? 
That is what is so hard about this. And I think it's so going to be so hard for regulators to straddle that line. So it was actually interesting because, you know, I'm known in, in my family as like the crypto person. So when the GameStop thing you know, starts happening, my brother sent me a text message and he's like, oh, does, you know, will will blockchain solve this? And I'm like, well, no, I mean, like it'll help a lot, but but like it's not going to be a direct solution to this. And I'm like, and it's definitely not ready to take on these trading volumes. I mean, GameStop hit several billion dollars in volume, but there are parallels to what's going on with GameStop already starting to emerge on the blockchain. And we're going to have to figure out like when do the regulators step in like you you mentioned bitmax earlier is a good example of where the, where the regulators decided that they needed to step in and they were offering some complex financial products as well like futures and some other things like that right and i think the facts are you know really evolving on this situation right you've got robin hood who owns robin hood right is it citadel how much do they own how much power do they have sure how much exposure do they have on on gamestop right did they play a role in in halting trading or was it you know, really just a Robin Hood call. I, I don't know. And and was this really Reddit Wall Street bets driving it up completely? Or was that part of the story? Is there more to the story? I did see some people were talking about the fact that it may not have been that retail investors may have been, you know, net negative as the week drew, drew on and the price kept rising. So what does that mean? Were there were hedge, were other hedge funds, you know, making bets towards as the week drew on? Were they taking the place of Reddit Wall Street bets? I don't know. I don't know, but it's fascinating. Yeah. So let's let's sort of move on from this a little bit and look at this more broadly. You know, we, again, going back to the whole decentralized web thing, like we want this to be a thing. But from a legal perspective, what needs to happen before the decentralized web is widely adopted? That's a good question. I think we do need to see some more consistency and some more. We need some certainty in the regulatory environment. I think Matt hit the nail on the head when he said that a lot of people think you need regulation in this industry so that more money will be invested in it. I think that's completely right. I think you've got a lot of, you know, a lot of investors in this country and in the world who are risk averse and and don't want to get into something that they may view as like, you know, the wild west or or, or just isn't quite settled yet in terms of what the rules of engagement are. And so I think as those rules, if they're drafted properly, start to kind of get set up, people will be better equipped to, to internalize the risk and understand how to mitigate it. So, and I think that's key. I think that really is key to, to taking the harness off and, and letting this industry grow. Would you say that that's probably true for other, other economies as well, if we look more globally? Like, how do you think other governments from other countries are going to handle us moving to the decentralized ecosystem? So my perspective is is U.S. based, right? I don't know much about the laws. I need to learn more, and I, I should learn more about the laws of, of all the other countries on this. But what I think, generally speaking, is I think you're going to see competition amongst countries for who can develop develop more favorable laws and regulations. We see it already in corporate taxation, right? Certain countries are viewed as more favorable in order to so that, so that in order to drive more businesses there to headquarter there. So I think you're going to see a competition amongst global leaders as to who can put together a really good regulatory regime and, you know, can draw that business in. And I think it's going to, what the effect will be is you'll have this competition, which will drive down unnecessary regulation. And so ultimately it'll settle it. There will be an equilibrium where it will settle after all that competition kind of hashes its way out. 
And I wish I had a crystal ball to tell you where that equilibrium is, but but I think you're going to see you're going to see this over the years. It's going to develop, and countries are going to kind of go tit for tat with each other. And then from like a timeline perspective, then you know obviously it's hard to speculate on timeline. It, it's things are changing so quickly. But if you had to speculate, when would you say when would you expect to see the decentralized web or a decentralized eco- ecosystem exist across the globe? Yeah, like you said, this is tough. I don't know. I think there's clear, clearly there's a lot of momentum in this space, especially for blockchain. Uh, and I think I think that's the first step. And and I know there has been some research done on this. Research in advisory firm Gartner, I think out of South Africa, is of the opinion that blockchain deployments across the financial services ecosystems are, are still a couple of years away. And last year they said 80% of supply chain blockchain initiatives are going to remain in the pilot stage through 2022. I think surveys by accounting firms also show that a lot of companies do actually plan to implement permissioned blockchains very, very soon, if not already. And some even are planning to implement public chains. So you've got companies though, right, that surveys will all, that do also show are, are view blockchain as a critical, like top five priority for them looking into the future. So the only question I think really is how much implementation and adoption, especially with respect to local governments who are slow, typically, you know, how many problems are going to arise from that? What, how much regulatory issues, security threats, and other things of that nature are going to slow adoption? Because once adoption picks up, I think you're going to see it happen very quickly. Sort of a follow-up to that. Do you think that countries like us with the CCPA or the EU with the GDPR, places where these regulations are already exist, do you think that we'll see sort of a boost in the timeline in those places with adoption of blockchain? Or how do you think blockchain is going to impact existing laws like the CCPA and GDPR? Is it going to build on that? Is it going to get rid of it completely? Or what's the connection there? I think that's that's another very interesting question. I think CCPA, right, and the blockchain, I think, have a lot in common in terms of data integrity, cybersecurity, transparency. But the CCPA was written in a way that I think kind of assumes, right, that one single entity controls the data. On a truly decentralized platform, though, that's not going to be the case. So it gets, it gets back to this carrot and stick analogy. If you want to ask someone, under the CCPA, right, you have a right to ask someone to delete your information. Under the CCPA, though, and in a decentralized, truly decentralized web or system, who do you ask? And who bears the responsibility if your request is not, is not acted upon? I think those are questions that need to be answered. And, and I think the laws will be, can and will be adjusted and revised as, as these things continue to bubble up. So I would say that it's basically like now we're taking a trip to Europe <laughs> when we start talking about like consumer data. And I think that and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Europe is basically ahead of the rest of the planet on consumer protection for data laws because of their GDPR. And one of the things that we get a lot and that we'd like to talk a lot about is users permissioning access to their their data and to share their data and then users storing this personally. And this is the whole like consent by default framework for cryptocurrency. And I actually think that this can be potentially very innovative, especially for people in Europe who need to comply with these new laws. And for those of those listening in, it's basically when you visit a website, you see those little pop-ups that say, hey, accept my cookies. (laughs) And they have like all these disclaimers about the things that they're tracking on you. And what we're trying to get to is an internet where 
you can permission access to different parts of your your data potentially and through through the blockchain by doing a key exchange so i think it's actually a potentially a great way for structuring um, data sharing between acts between apps and like using the blockchain in the back end and that this would also address privacy so i'm actually in, you know this is this is cutting edge for crypto technology so i'm actually just kind of curious and um, what are your thoughts on on this area like specifically using blockchain you know in europe in this case for these gdpr rules and what are your thoughts on that and have you seen anything interesting that's starting to pop up there you know, I haven't really seen anything interesting on this topic that's popped up, but I do have thoughts on it. I think it's, it's potentially a really elegant solution. I think about it, okay, in terms of know your customer laws in banking, right? Banks have a legal responsibility right now to know who they're dealing with, which means that you as the consumer have to provide the bank certain information. If the bank, right, needs to share that information with someone else, unless they're mandated by law to do so, such as with respect to like currency manipulation. But if they are required to share that information, they have to seek your consent typically. So I think the idea of consent by default, where you're kind of giving a blanket consent to someone else to share your information, could provide a solution for streamlining data transfer in appropriate circumstances. But um, whether that solution complies with current privacy laws, I think is a separate question that still needs to be addressed and it's still up in the air. And you're also going to have to I think, determine whether and how to truly give cons consumers informed consent so that they actually know what's going on with their data. You're going to have to work through privacy laws as they change because they're going to continue to change. And you're going to have to really think about the mechanics of revoking consent and other issues before this becomes a one-stop solution. But I think I think it's, it's on the right. I definitely think it's on the right track. Yeah. The first place that I see this being like everyday useful, especially for people who are in the cryptocurrency space are all these trading apps. And because if you go on to these different decentralized trading apps where you're able to trade your cryptocurrency back and forth on the blockchain, it would be really nice if it was easy, like one click to share your KYC information, right? And then you could do that in a private fashion. And then when you move to the other trading app, let's say you use three or four different ones, you can permission them into your same KYC data. Because right now, if you're in crypto and trade across multiple platforms, you have to get approved like like 10 different times and every time it takes like two three weeks um so it's quite annoying it'd be great if you could actually just take that data with you as you moved around the internet and then that so that's where i think we're going to see some first applications in the next couple of years and then you know you can generalize that for for other personal data so cool i'm glad um, something to think about we should talk more uh, maybe offline <laughs> at some point because i'm curious yeah. to see how that works but yeah diana i think you had the next one here yeah, I was going to ask about smart contracts. That's another big topic in blockchain. And from a legal perspective, what are some of the pros and cons to smart contracts? And are you concerned at all about the quality of these contracts or concerned at all that, that they're going to put lawyers out of their jobs down the line? Or tell me what your thoughts are on smart contracts. Sure. Wow, it's, uh, that one hits close to home as a lawyer. No, I... <laughs> I, I, I'm not. We're going to try to put you out of business. <laughs> We're going to try to put you out of business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not concerned that they will put lawyers out of their jobs in my lifetime. At least I'll, I'll put I'll put a time stamp on that. Maybe that's just like, you know, hubris speaking or like self-preservation. But, but it's not that I don't, I really, it's not that I don't see a place for smart contracts in the immediate future, the right here and right now. Like take, for example, the probably the easiest kind of analogy or example, a real estate escrow really to me seems like a prime target for smart contracts that take over very quickly. But but a real estate escrow agreement 
right, is just one of many agreements that are part of a real estate transaction. So you're still going to need lawyers to draft, analyze, revise, and provide advice on the sale agreements. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. I think that I view smart contracts as right now as supplements to standard contracts and under appropriate circumstances, ones that that can have huge benefits. Yeah. And so obviously we're not trying to put you out of your job anytime in your lifetime or beyond, but what are some ways in which, you know, know, we can continue to develop smart contracts so that they become more reliable on their own? Sure. I think in my view, you've got two key issues with smart contracts that could improve them. And one is improved coding, right? So that there are less, fewer errors. And, and then improving the ability for smart contracts to draw from reliable external inputs, right? If you need information from outside the chain, where are you getting it? How are you getting it? Is it reliable? What happens if that source is down? Do you have a, a backup source, right? External inputs and, and coding, I think, are, are, are huge. But with smart contracts, you've got, you've got a ton of upside. I think you've got, there's so many benefits. Self-executing contracts, right, are, are quicker and cheaper, you're taking out middlemen or middle people, but you know, that doesn't mean just because there's a lot of benefits doesn't mean that, you know, you've, you've got, it's going to be easy. You've got to worry about subjectivity, you know, in contracts such as best efforts or, you know, contracts that say time is of the essence. So how do you code for that? There's also issues with jurisdiction, right? What jurisdictions laws will apply to the contract beyond that is a litigator who deals with evidence every day and getting evidence into court, you know, how do you get blockchain into evidence? Some states are actually addressing that now, but that's something that will have to evolve. You need the blockchain to be admissible to prove your case, you know, and and it's going to be different than putting someone on the stand who entered into a contract. So all of that, I think, is really interesting. I think smart contracts have a place right now, and I think they can help contracts become more efficient for sure. Yeah. Do we, this, this might be a dumb question, but do we know if smart contracts are enforceable in the same way that regular contracts are? I don't think we have a definitive answer on that, but I see no legal reason why they won't be. Because I think you've got, you've got, you can have acceptance, you know, offer acceptance, consideration and performance. So, you know, you've got, you've got all the elements to a typical contract claim right there. So I I don't, but judges and, and courts and common law are, notoriously slow to develop and it is a complex area. So there is risk, right? Until we have definitive word from state Supreme courts um, saying that they're enforceable, you've got, you do have an outside risk that they won't be. It's crazy to think about that future law students are going to be reading new contract law books that talk about smart contracts and the blockchain and all these things that, you know, don't exist currently. They're going to have to do Whoever writes these legal textbooks is going to be busy for the next decade or so. Well, I'm actually, I was actually just thinking like, you know, if there's an error in a smart contract, is that a feature or a bug, you know, and that's going to be an interesting conversation to have between your lawyer, like, oh, my smart contract doesn't, you know, you think it has a bug and you lost a million dollars. And I'm like, oh, no, that's actually a feature of the smart contract. <laughs> and we're going to go like, then you're going to have to judge the intent of the smart contract. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's going to be, that's going to be funny. I'll, I'm sure there'll be one though, like we've had a couple of huge court cases that have been pretty famous already on the blockchain. And I'm sure there's going to be some more. And so speaking on different projects in the blockchain space, which are the ones that you're watching most closely personally? I'm actually just kind of curious, what do you tune in, you know, with your lawyer hat, you know, or maybe just personally on the blockchain? What are the ones that call out to you that you'd like to follow along with? Yeah, I'm, I think, most interested in 
the intersection bet- between decentralized finance, banks, and the regulators. I, I really think that that is going to be a battle, right? How are, is it going to be regulated? I think there's going to be a lot of interesting questions that have to be answered. I think there are a lot of lobbyists that will be involved. I think there are a lot of powers in the current structure that would prefer the status quo. And so I think all of that's going to make for a huge battle, you know, and I think it's, you're going to see it play out mostly behind the scenes, but, but we will see lawsuits. We will see regulation. We will probably see laws hit the books and how, you know, somebody's going to win that battle, whether that means a truly decentralized platform for finance or whether that means you've got, you know, the blockchain being utilized in, in within the confines of the current banking regulatory structure with the current players is that's what I'm going to watch over the next decade. And then finally, Mike, for people who want to learn more about how policies and laws are developing in this space, what are some of what are some of your favorite resources that have helped you learn about this, whether, you know, it's people to follow on Twitter or books to read or podcasts to listen to? Can you point people in the direction of how they can learn more? Sure. If there are any lawyers listening, I do like to keep current on this these issues through a law review articles, one of my favorite ways. Continuing learning education seminars, there's actually quite a few. You know, even though it's a developing area, a lot of people are putting their heads together and trying to keep current on it together. Social media is a great, probably the best place, right? Because I think you've got a lot of people who are interested in this area who are also power users on social media like Twitter. So that's a great place to, to find information, although you got to verify it, right? And, and there's, you know, I like, I do like to stick to major media, media journalism too, when I can. To give a few examples for your listeners, you know, I'd say I probably, you know, if I want to just get some quick news, I'd probably go to like cointelegraph.com or something. But if I want to see, you know, maybe get a little more humor, I might check out somebody like Mark Cuban, who I think has been pretty vocal in this field. Haralabas Volgaris, who's at Haralabob for insight and humor. I started following him actually because he's a, you know, I have some friends who are, who are pro gamblers, sports gamblers. And he, he is not my friend, but he is a prolific or was a prolific gambler in the NBA. And, and then he now works for Mark Cuban as the head of quant for the Dallas Mavericks, but he's really interested in this area. He's very vocal about it. If you look over the past three or four weeks at his Twitter feed, he's talking all about DeFi, all about Bitcoin. He's talking about, he's talking about GameStop. And, and it's, it's all there. He's very current and insightful. So, Michael, I've appreciated the time you've had with us today. This has been excellent. There's some parts of this that got pretty dense. I'll be honest for those at home out there. But, you know, we covered a lot of topics. We talked about privacy, you know, and then privacy with potentially central bank currencies. We talked several interesting law cases, Telegram and Rempel. We covered ICOs a little bit. You, sharing user data, GDPR, how that may impact Europe personal area of interest for me. And then, you know, of course, we talked about DeFi and the GameStop. So thank you for the time. I mean, I've appreciated it. I've learned a lot here. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks so much, Mike. Before you go, though, real quick, tell people where they can connect with you if they want to hit you up and learn more from you, or where they can find out more about Clark Hill, maybe get connected with other people on your team if they've got a legal issue that they need some actual legal advice on. Go ahead and plug yourself. ClarkHill.com, which I think is undergoing a revamp right now. I think we're still on the old, we still have the old website up, but you know, there will be some updates to the website soon, but ClarkHill.com is the domain. You can find me under the people's tab, Michael Krogan, C-R-O-G-H-A-N. And that has my email, office, phone, cell phone, whatever. You can reach me. 
That's the best way. Awesome. Cool. We'll include all of that in the show notes. So it's easy for you guys to find. Thanks again, Mike, for being here. Thanks for, you know, sitting with us for so long, covering so many different topics. I think we could do a much deeper dive. We could be here all day if we wanted to cover everything. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you learned something new and interesting today. And we will be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something I've said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, download the podcast, and share this episode on social media with your network. This helps other people find us. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. We can continue the conversation on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, or ideas to me at Matthew E. Gould. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.